I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers. Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Mays. Hi everyone, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Mange, your other co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we are delighted today to be talking to Michael Kaiser from the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And in today's world, everything is going online and toward technology. And in fact, seniors are one of the fastest growing groups who are going online today and getting involved with things like social media in order to keep up with the kids and the grandkids. But a lot of people refer to seniors as digital immigrants, people who really aren't that comfortable and don't know all the language and the the lay of the land of the technological world. And so that means that they can often be more vulnerable to threats that come through the computer or over online sources. So that's a part of why we are so delighted to be talking to Michael today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I know we're, we have a, a lot of information uh, to cover here in a short period of time, and we're really going to be focused on how uh, everyone, but more, more specifically the elderly, can protect themselves while they're online. And that, that's a strong interest of you personally. Isn't that right, Michael? Uh, yeah. You know, we're, well, not only at the National Cybersecurity Alliance, we're very concerned about uh, people not being harmed when they use their computers and staying safe and secure online. But in my previous part of my career... I worked with uh, crime victims directly for many years on crime victim services and rights. And so uh, we want to make sure no one becomes a victim. And if they do, we want to make sure that they uh, get the help that they need. That's fantastic. Mike, let me give, a, give our listeners a little bio about you, and then please feel free to, to jump in any time. Michael joined the National Cybersecurity Alliance in 2008. He is the National Cybersecurity Alliance's chief executive. And at, in that role, he engages business, government, and other nonprofit organizations in a broad public education and outreach effort to strengthen the nation's cyber infrastructure. The National Cybersecurity Alliance's premier outreach and awareness campaign, the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, which I know we're going to talk a lot about, Michael. You're, you're directly involved in leading that effort. And uh, you are also, you serve on the Department of Commerce, the NTIA, online safety technology working group and you were named one of sc magazine's information security luminaries of 2009 have we left anything out no that sounds great i i did i will say that you know for many years i i I worked in victim services and victims rights so in new york city and as well as in washington dc yeah tell us a little bit more about that because that that's such a a wonderful uh, quality that you bring to this work so say a bit more about your background in victims rights in New York City, I work for an organization that's now called Safe Horizon. It's probably the largest local victim service agency out there. It serves, I think, about 200,000 people a year through hotlines and community offices and in courts. You know, I really worked in, 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 the, in the main sort of planning and administrative part of that. But seniors were actually a big target of ours, very hard to reach, easily impacted by crime um, in many different ways, whether it was a physical crime like, a, you know, a burglary or a robbery on the street. And also, I think some of the more, uh, you know, insidious uh, elder abuse crimes, we really worked a lot on those issues, uh, trying to both reach victims with help, let them know that help was available. And in, in Washington, I worked for the National Center for Victims of Crime, which is a nationwide advocacy group that really works to uh, improve the treatment of crime victims everywhere through policy and other kinds of things. Sounds like marvelous work, and I'm sure it was enormously rewarding for you. It was very rewarding, and I think I took a lot of lessons from that work into this job uh, at the National Cybersecurity Alliance, probably chiefly among them, the importance of collaboration. You know, when you're working with crime victims, they touch so many different aspects uh, of the community, whether it's law enforcement, uh, the prosecutor's office, uh, social services in some kind of way. Some of them have, you know, extensive needs, as you're talking about, like domestic violence victims, extensive needs for housing, 
security, safety, uh, and you only can get that for people if you work together. And, and that's one of the hallmarks of what we do here at the National Cybersecurity Alliance is realizing that the Internet is something that we all have to work to secure and protect. Every one of us plays a role, and we collaborate with industry and government and other nonprofits all around the globe to make that happen. So, yeah, it's, it was really satisfying work, and it's kind of work where you go home and say, you know, I did something, you know, whatever we did today, we helped people out, and that's a good feeling to have. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I'm wondering, as part of your work with uh, victims in, in those roles if you have a, a couple uh, examples or stories of even, uh, uh, you know, cyber crime involving a senior that you recall helping. Um, I, you know, I kind of got out of uh, a lot of that before the, the huge part of the Internet age. But what I'll say is that a lot of the crimes that we see on the Internet and, you know, we got calls all the time from seniors who had been scammed. Right. You know, been convinced to give away their money or. Um, you know, involved in some other uh, form of fraud. And I think what you see in the Internet age is that's the translation of some of that onto the Internet. So there were lots of stories of seniors who trusted someone, maybe a, even, a, unfortunately, even an, a child, right, a, sibling, right you know, yeah. a child or a family caregiver or an external caregiver who then um, in some way manipulated them to take all their money. All too common, isn't it? Yes. So, Michael, tell our listeners about the uh, National Cybersecurity Alliance and all of the wonderful programs that you're involved in. Yeah, so the National Cybersecurity Alliance was founded in 2001, quite immediately after 9-11. A bunch of visionary industry leaders got together and said, gee, in 9-11, there were some elements of that attack, if you remember, that uh, impacted a lot of networks. So the phone networks in lower Manhattan may remember that the stock exchange was closed for several days. They realized that there was not a lot of attention being paid to how do we protect this? And at that point, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine. It was only 14 years ago, (laughs) but still emerging Internet. There was not most people still didn't have high speed Internet access. Maybe they had at work. They didn't have at home. And they thought we really need to spend some time educating people and making them aware about the Internet and how to protect it all up and down from home users to small and medium-sized businesses to making sure that we integrate uh, cybersecurity education into the schools. They were really quite visionary in many ways, and those were some companies like Microsoft and Symantec and McAfee, Cisco, Computer Associates, AOL, a couple others. They said, we have to do this in collaboration, not only with each other as an industry, but with government. They really put into the organization a DNA, let's do this together, We all have a stake and an interest in a safe and secure Internet, and we're not going to compete on who's more safe and who's more secure. Mm -hmm. We're just going to make the platform as as safe and secure as we can for everyone. And that's been in our DNA since day one. And that emerged to be a a large-scale collaboration with the Department of Homeland Security, but we also work with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. We also work with the White House from time to time where industry and government work together to educate people about staying safe online. And that's turned into programs like National Cybersecurity Awareness Month now in its 13th year, which is really a nationwide effort, um, a really grassroots nationwide effort, where we encourage everyone to participate from wherever they sit, both making themselves safer and secure online, as well as teaching others to be safer and more secure online. So I hope some of your listeners will think about how they could impact the people around them to make them safer and more secure. We have Data Privacy Day now in January, which is uh, helping people understand how to check their privacy and their data online, as well as directed at small and medium-sized businesses. And our premier campaign is our Stop, Think, Connect campaign. And this will give you a good example of how I brought things over from the, uh, from the victim services world. Stop, Think, Connect was created by a collaboration of 25 companies and seven federal agencies that worked together for a year by consensus to do consumer-based research to come up with a message that we thought would resonate with people that could, in effect, be the Smokey Bear campaign for cybersecurity. And that message is Stop, Think, Connect. If you think about core messaging around safety in our society, stop, drop, and roll, stop, look, and listen, stop, look both ways before crossing. Stop, Think, Connect is that same message for the digital world. Stop. Make sure that you've taken security precautions, things like passwords or multi-factor authentication or updated software. Think about the consequences of what you're about to do across anything. Am I giving away too much information? Am I sharing something that I'd rather be private? And then connect. And the connect piece is not really meant to be the physical connection, like I'm going to go out, connect, but it's really to be go out and 
use the Internet, because if you're safer and more secure, you can use it with more confidence. And at the end of the day, you can do more online if you've taken care of the security and safety issues. And that's really an important message, uh, because I think so many of our elderly look at the Internet as some big evil uh, bogeyman uh, when, when there's so much good uh, to come from safe usage of the Internet. And that's what you're trying to convey with the Stop, Think, Connect program, right, Michael? Yeah, we want to, you know, one, we want to make it simpler for people to understand that, you know, not all of this is super technical and super complicated. Clearly, the behavioral piece, the think part, is actually one of the most important pieces, right? Where we see people clicking on things that they shouldn't or providing information to people that they shouldn't. And actually, seniors have a lot of life experience that younger people don't. And I think sometimes they can be more suspicious in some cases because they've been, they've been around, right? They've seen right. stuff happening. Um, and so that's, a, that's some good news in there for them. But also I think it can seem a little daunting to people because it's not technology that was in their life for their whole lives. It's something that's been introduced later in their life, depending how old they are, could be quite late in their life. And so it's hard to feel like you can master something new like that um, when other people seem to be doing it so handily, and it may cause some issues around, you know, I don't really know how to use this, I'm scared of it, or only bad things happen there. I hear that all the time when I'm out giving presentations, is you either get seniors who are sort of blasé about the threats, they don't, they don't even think about it, and it's, it's like they trust anything on a screen, or you get the ones who are terrified of it and won't even go near a computer. And, and I, I really like that you are trying to find the healthy middle ground there, which is, you got to be aware, you got to be vigilant, but go out and enjoy it. So I really appreciate that. When we, you know, we've done some presentations, some seniors as well, and, and, you know, we talk with some other organizations that work with seniors as well. There's so much benefit to them in this technology. We, in America right now, you know, not everybody lives in the town they grew up in or children move away, grandparents, uh, grandkids live at a distance, other family members may live at a distance. And I think a lot of people use, and I think especially seniors, use the technology to stay connected to their family and their friends who may be spread out across the country or the world for that matter. It provides a very powerful linkage for them and we would want them to be able to feel like they could do that and make those connections as strongly as possible. That's, that's a great point. Uh, we've talked in a previous episode of the podcast and this is really our specialty about the emotional hooks that scammers will use to uh, take advantage of seniors and loneliness is a very important emotion that scammers will prey upon in the elderly and the internet is a perfect way to still stay connected with family and friends in an otherwise perhaps lonely environment. That's a very true thing. I mean, I think about just the advent of Skype and some seniors that I work with in my practice, because, Michael, in my regular day job, as it were, I'm a counselor and psychotherapist, and I have a fair number of seniors in my practice. If they can just learn the simple way to use Skype, it really reduces their loneliness and social isolation, which can adversely affect them. So, you know, you're right. The technological platforms that we have today really help alleviate a lot of those problems for seniors. I mean, I think Skype is great, and I think, you know, the, the ability now, like, you know, when we were all growing up, the concept of, like, a video call was, like, that was Star science, Trek. Fi <laughs> science right. fiction, like, not in our lifetimes that ever going to happen, right? Yeah. right rotary right. dial. You know, the ability even asynchronously to connect, right, to watch, yeah. you know, to right. look at posts on Facebook, right, to, you know, get uh, even pictures, you know, it doesn't always have to be, you know, in a big social network, even though it's getting, you know, photographs emailed to you, those kinds of things which really connect people are yeah. really strong drivers for people to want to use the technology as well to keep engaged with it. Um, and so, but there are a lot of risks, and, and that's, you know, that's clearly something that people need to pay attention to. It's not yeah. a risk-free environment, as very little is risk-free yeah. in our world, right? I mean, it's driving is definitely not risk-free environment either. So there's yeah, uh, plenty of analogies <laughs> yeah. out there. And, and we wanted our listeners to be sure to know that uh, we here at the ScammerCast and Curtis and I with our organization called Senior Scam Action Associates are proud partners with the National Cybersecurity Alliance's Stop, Think, Connect program. So we're delighted to be on board with you guys. And we're thrilled to have you. That, the model of that program is organizations and groups like yours taking a harmonized message and disseminating it to the people who will listen to them. We, we believe in trusted networks, right? We believe that people listen to messages when they come from people that they trust. And so rather than making sure that everybody trusts us, 
if you can send a message that someone will listen to, then take our message and use it. And we're very, we appreciate you taking on the, on the challenge and, uh, and everyone that has more than 250 organizations in the country are now using the messaging. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we're finding that uh, cybersecurity is such a hot topic among seniors, among their family members that might be caregivers mm-hmm. for the seniors and for even professionals uh, like myself, uh, my colleagues in the elder law area. We're very concerned about cybersecurity when it comes to dealing with our clients. And, and we hear from our clients that they're concerned as well. So anything that we can provide uh, through your organization is great information. And I'm wondering if you could share some of those resources that you folks have developed through the Stop, Think, Connect program with our listeners. Yeah, so if people want to go to stopthinkconnect.org, they'll find a ton of resources. One of the ways we create the program, by the way, which I think is also interesting, is if people create, join the program like you all have, and say you created a really excellent tip sheet on how to talk to seniors about staying safe and secure online, and it's using our Stop, Think, Connect information, we'll take that, with your permission, of course, and put it on our website and disseminate it for everybody else to use. And that's a way that we create materials by sharing the responsibility of everybody participating. So we we count on that a lot. But that said, we also create a ton of materials ourselves. We have tip sheets. We have posters. We have videos. We have, for different kinds of settings, we have posters for classrooms. We have posters for the workplace. We have posters that are just general in nature for people staying safe and secure online. Tip sheets are on, we have tip sheets on mobile, on parenting, on basic security, on traveling with technology, on all kinds of topics. And it's all there. Anything that you see on our website that's pre-made, like a poster, anybody can have and take for free. And then groups like yours who want to get in, really get involved and take the materials and maybe tailor them and use that messaging to create their own set of materials for their own constituency. They can sign a license, but as you know, that license is free. We don't charge for that, but we do have to protect kind of our notion of what it means to be safe and secure online from an intellectual property perspective. Definitely, and we encourage all of our listeners to visit our website at scammercast.com where we'll have links to Stop, Think, Connect. You'll find all of the resources that Michael's been talking about this far. And so, Michael, let's turn our attention for a little while to some of the threats that you're seeing out there in the online world and, and cybersecurity kinds of issues. Do, do you have any examples or stories for our listeners about what's happened out there or what's happening now? Well, let me start from the very all the, 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 the major threat. The Internet gets attacked by different people, right? You have nation states, probably not a big issue for your listeners. But, well, at some level it will be as we, as we look down at some of these stories and what's going on out there. Right. You know, China, other countries that just want to do harm to the United States and or gather information about United States citizens, right? You have hacker or hacktivists, people who like to disrupt the Internet because they don't like what somebody did. You've seen cases of that in sometimes them going after like a prosecutor's office because they don't feel like they aggressively prosecuted a case that they should have. There's been some examples of that, actually. Um, There was a sexual assault case, uh, I believe it was in Illinois. No one was happy with how it was being handled by the police, and they actually went out and, you know, brought down the prosecutor's office website, stole evidence, and revealed it on the web. So they have a different agenda, and it's important to understand these different agendas because when you're trying to protect yourself, you need to think about who's trying to do what to me, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the third category, which I think is one that really applies here, are the cyber criminals. And the cyber criminals are really motivated very simply in the pursuit of money, right? That's what they're after. They're tried and true criminals. But it's important to know that there's those differences. And they're looking to monetize personal information about you or to engage you in a way that you reveal them enough personal information and or in some of these cases, these, you know, serious fraud cases, obviously, they're trying to create a direct financial connection and have you actually send them money. What we see, and I think, you know, that's out there right now around those regards, and I think, and this would uh, certainly apply, I think, to a lot of, to a lot, to a lot of the folks who, who listen to this podcast is we've seen the theft of a lot of medical records lately, whether it was the Anthem breach or the Primera breach. I think Care First may have had a breach here on the East Coast. There have been a lot of data breaches that have resulted in the loss of information. And that information is, in many ways, uh, unfortunately, really significant. If you want to compare, for example, 
say, everybody's heard of like the Target breach or the Home Depot breach, right? Sure. These big retail data breaches. Yeah, I got Those breaches tended to be attempts to steal credit card numbers, right? Steal 70 million credit card numbers. Maybe you can monetize, you know, a very small percentage of those. Your bank is probably very much, is very much aware of the numbers that have been stolen. The window for fraud is pretty small. And, um, and consumers are generally protected, right, in, in almost every case. So while it may be an inconvenience, especially if you need a new card or, you know, may cause you some agita because you're concerned that someone is trying to attempt to access your credit, the risks there, I mean, there, there, are, there are definitely risks, so don't get me wrong, but they're, they're less than if someone has gone into your medical records and now has your name, your home address, your Social Security number, uh, if you're still employed, your employer perhaps your employment history, all kinds of things. The, the U.S. government's OPM, which was just, you know, brutally extensive in the amount of data that was lost. And that m- information can be used in different kinds of ways, obviously. That can lead to insurance fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody actually trying to use your insurance to um, get medical benefits. It can lead to uh, real identity theft, where someone tries to become you and use your good credit history for themselves. And so we see lots of those kinds of cases and hear a lot about people who go check their credit history and find out that someone tried to take out a mortgage in their name, Right. Um, those kinds of things. You know, very interesting uh, that you, you bring up health records, uh, medical records breaches, because I just saw some information this week, and I think it was published by Bankrate on the dark web an individual's health insurance info gets sold for about twenty dollars. That's it. Yeah, amazing. There you go. So now, now we know what the criminals are getting out of uh, uh, out of all their efforts to to steal your uh, medical information. Yeah. Well, so you're, what you're what you're pointing to is a you know a, a really interesting aspect of the cybercrime environment, right? The cybercrime environment is run by specialists, right? There are people that steal the data. There are people that sell the data, and then there are people that try to monetize the data. <laughs> so <laughs> the person that, you know, you can hire someone to steal the data, let's say, from a healthcare provider, and, and if they steal a million records, and then someone else takes those records and sells them, well, if they have a million records, and they can get 20 bucks a piece for them, mm-hmm. I mean, if they can sell 100,000 of them... Yeah. It's, it's not, not a bad, a, not a bad uh, business plan, is it? No, unfortunately, it's <laughs> yeah, not a bad business yeah. plan. So it sounds like it's not. I mean, credit cards even go for less, right? That's because right, they're right. not as valuable. Really? You know, just uh, the way I like to tell people to sometimes think about this is that in cybercrime, data is actually the coin of the realm. It's data, and that's what people are trying to steal. They're trying to steal your personal information or personal information about people, and it could be anything from your medical records, right, to your credit card number, to a social security number or other kinds of identifying information. If you run a small business, they could be trying to steal your intellectual property that you put R&D into, research and design money, to try and create a new idea, right, that you use to sell. And if they can steal that from you without having to invest that money and then create the product that you are creating without having to pay for the research, they can sell it for less than you. So there's data is what people are after, and data, and this applies to everyone, is really what you're trying to protect. You're trying to protect your personal information, especially for, you know, once you get into the home with individuals and the like. It's really having that mindset of, I have to protect my personal information. And then to whom do they sell this, this information or this data, and what do they do with it? You mentioned insurance fraud, for example. What other kinds of stuff do they do with, with the data? Well, they do straight-out identity theft, right? So okay. they go and try and either open uh, accounts, get credit lines, perhaps, depending on, on what their goal is, maybe even try to open a mortgage. I mean, um, they try to monetize your data in any way they can. That's their goal. And that's a whole other set of specialists, right? So sure, <laughs> yeah. to talk about this way, but it, it's truly organized crime, right? And people are good at doing various things, including right down to the people that actually buy the credit card numbers, then clone those credit cards, right? To make a fake credit card that looks exactly and has the magnetic strip with all the right information on it, including the little three-digit code, right? And then they take those credit cards and they try to make purchases. And of course, what they do is purchase something that they then can then sell and make into cash. So it's a whole ecosystem up and down the line. Uh, but medical, you know, medical fraud, certainly part of that. Tax ID, tax fraud yeah. is also a huge burgeoning issue. That is a big um, deal where, this year. You know, we've heard many, many cases of people who, <laughs> I just had one recently where someone 
got notified when they submitted their tax taxes that they got uh, a note. Well, we've already given you your refund. Well, guess what? They had <laughs> didn't make and, it into their account. Did it? Yeah. Well, and you know what happens is, yeah. you know, now for a long period of time, they have a whole separate procedure for actually. I mean, it's the same forms and everything, but they have a whole separate procedure for actually submitting their taxes to the IRS. So, you know, it's a huge inconvenience, and it's scary. I mean, when someone has your tried to steal your tax refund, <laughs> right, right, back to sort of my days of victimization work, you know, that feels like a really huge violation. Oh, yeah, it does. You yeah. know, I mean, it's a huge violation, and it's scary. You can't, you can't see the threat. You have no idea where it's coming from. Right. And then it makes you wonder, well, what else do they know about me? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you agree with the idea that I hear floating around a lot that there really is no privacy anymore? I, I, don't, I don't fully agree with that. I, I think okay. I, I'm, I'm not a person who likes to get helpless about the future. And yeah. I think when you tell people there's no privacy anymore, then people may not do things to help protect themselves. And so while I think the notion of privacy has changed, mm-hmm. and I think our understanding of the way data gets collected and used about us has to evolve and people need to know more and learn more about that. I'm not ready to give it up. When that happens, and I'll give you some examples from sort of the cybercrime world, uh, a similar example, people don't do what they need to do to protect themselves. And so another common notion uh, in in, in the cybersecurity world is it's not if you're going to be breached, it's when you're going to be breached. Yes. And so you do need to protect about that because I think the high likelihood that you're going to be breached is very strong. But then it says, if there's nothing I can do to prevent it, then why should I do anything? Yeah, very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, some people go in the direction of, well, then I'm just going to make sure that I have good thinking and practices around recovery and work to minimize the damage, like do damage control. I mean, I, I hear that from people as well. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of us in cybersecurity, when we talk about it sort of in the, in the more macro way, we don't talk about it as just prevention. We talk about it as resistance and resilience, right? right. So you do everything okay. you can to resist, to prevent, but then you also think about how would I come back? What would I do if something happened? And, and I think, we, you know, it's not an uncommon kind of notion across other kinds of things that we might face. If, if you live in hurricane country, mm-hmm. you're going to have some kind of plan. Like when they say there's a hurricane, you know, what, you know, am I going to board the windows? Am I going to do these other things? Sure. Um, or mm-hmm. have I built my house in a way to a code that can withstand, you know, 140 mile an hour winds. And then if a hurricane does happen and there's damage, how do I come back from that? Right. right. What's the plan for coming back? And that happens at the individual level, which is very important. But it could happen um, at, a, at, a, at a you know municipal level. It could happen at a statewide level, and and we all we're all part of that resilience in the end. Yeah, that's a hot topic in my field of psychotherapy as well. It's one that I work with a lot is the idea of resilience, and and I really like what you've done there with combining resistance and resilience into a broad strategy. I think that's genius. Yeah, and you know back into that whole resilience. I mean, certainly from my crime victims days. Resilience um, always a really interesting topic because, um, and I'm, I'm talking to the real expert here because I'm not really the expert on all this, but you know that people just respond to these events in many different kinds of ways, and some really people do. bounce back. And I'm, like, I'm not I'm not making a value judgment about anyone sure, here because sure. it's just who we are, right? Right. Some of us bounce back in different kinds of ways, and be, people being able to tap their own resilience, whatever that level may be, is really mm-hmm. important part of the you know of the of the process after something bad happens. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. I really like that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, providing the tools to people on how to resist. Mm-hmm. Because I think so many people don't resist because they just don't know how. And they kind of throw their hands up and they're resigned to their fate. But by yeah. offering people tools uh, like you folks have through the Stop, Think, Connect program, now people are empowered to resist, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, our goal is always to try and make it easy. Right, trying to make it as, as simple as we, we can and, and to, to give people sometimes even aspirational states that they're supposed to achieve, like keep a clean machine, right? right, right make yeah. sure that the computers that you have, you know, have the software they need so they don't get infected, right? Those kinds of notions. What we found when we started to do the research under not underlying Stop and Connect was, wasn't, it was pretty obvious, but a lot of the advice that people were giving was extremely technical. And yes. we felt that that was not accessible to the average person, right? Yeah, um, yeah. 
the technology well, is daunting enough without having to dive deep into the the real technical aspects of it. Well, not only, yes, that's true, but and also uh, sort of in the evolution of messaging and and uh, education awareness around cybersecurity, uh, uh, most of the early messaging, of course, came from technical people who were the people who were the security experts. Right. They were not messaging experts. They certainly knew what they were talking about, but when you tell people that the first thing that you have to do is switch your computer out of administrator mode, right? <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. which was a which was a common yeah. common advice, you know, five years ago. People were like, "Well, you lost me at switch mode, right?" You yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very that, true. I, did, I, I didn't even know I was in a mode. So yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that emphasis on simplicity is vital for the average person, and certainly for the average senior. Again, going back to the idea that that. Technology is a language that most seniors don't speak readily, and the the simplicity piece will will make it that much more accessible and, in turn, improve their security dramatically. Yeah, and I think it also helps them communicate with others, too. So I think that one of the areas that I think we always see, you know, and, and look, I have older family members myself. All of us have been asked to help them out probably at some level with their technology. You, if I go to a security conference, which I do a lot, you know, uh, Often people say, yeah, I just was uh, at my parents' house last weekend and spent, you know, the whole weekend getting their computers fixed, right? I know whenever I talk to people in my family, often I'll get a list of things. How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think helping them understand uh, the simplicity of the language and then also the simplicity of how to ask for help, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm concerned about my machine because I'm not sure my soft. I, I understand what's happening with my software, you know, can be helpful to people who are trying to help them as well. Right. Well, Michael, uh, we really want to dive deep into uh, some of these uh, these simple tools and messages that you can share with our listeners to help them remain safe online. At this point, we do need to take a break. want to remind our listeners that you can find uh, all of the links that Michael has mentioned and ways to contact the National Cybersecurity Alliance through our website at scammercast.com. Yes, and you're listening to Michael Kaiser, the Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance on the ScammerCast at the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at scammercast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days, different. Today, technology allows scammers to reach victims across the globe through mail, email, phone calls, and even social media. Know what to look for so you can help protect yourself no matter where you are. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and to always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union. Move money for better. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear. The adrenaline. The unknown. Law Enforcement Training for the Arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints. Ballistics. DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States Military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LitaConference.com. That's L-E-T-A Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you 
behind the thin blue line. LetaConference.com. L-E-T-A Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Things in 1982 were a lot more simple. BMX bikes, the Versailles apartment complex in Schaumburg, Illinois, the sweet, innocent kiss of Andrea Schaefer, and of course, a little film from a man named Steven Spielberg called E.T. Science fiction, the detail of a broken but still together family, the relationships that were made when you were 12, ones that are never again truly realized. It seems a lot heavier than most remember, but all of these things and more await you in the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Steven Spielberg's E.T. 1982 on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Check it out now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more so than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you are alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The Discipline to Grow the strength of experience, the ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. Travel. It's what everyone wants more of in their life. But wow, where do you start? So many options, so many destinations, and finding the time in one's own schedule. You might think that all is lost, but there's hope on the horizon. Tune into the Travel Planners Podcast with us, Sue and Kevin McCarthy, to learn about how best to travel, what cities to visit, and catch a glimpse of the variety of ways to make the most of your travel dollars. From shopping for bargains in London's Portobello Antique Market. Watching monkeys groom each other as you sit on the balcony of your hotel in May. Malaysia. Sipping rum cocktails while enjoying the sunset over Bloody Bay in Jamaica. Staying up all night to observe St. Petersburg, Russia's White Nights Festival. Hiking the Great Wall of China. Enjoying the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. Or enjoying an unbelievably first-class journey on the cruise on rails, the Grand Lux Express. It's all available now on the Travel Planner Podcast with Kevin and Sue McCarthy. On the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, www.twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Did you get my underwear and stuff packed in the last bag? I thought you did. No, I didn't. Okay, uh, be sure to check us out, the Travel Planners Podcast on twoguystalking.com. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back, everyone, to the ScammerCast. We're visiting today with Michael Kaiser, the Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And, Michael, you've had some uh, terrific information that you've shared with us in, in the first part of our podcast today. Now we'd like to go a little bit deeper into the kind of reminders, the solutions, the, the proactive steps that people can take 
to keep themselves safe and, and to do what you call keep a clean machine and that sort of thing. So, so what do you recommend that people do first? So uh, first, we really uh, ask people to use the basic security measures, which we know will make them a little safer and more secure online. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, keep a clean machine is this notion that every device that connects to the Internet, so could be, you know, in, the, in a typical uh, setting, it could be, the, you know, a PC or a laptop or a tablet, but many people also have mobile phones they need to think about. So they need to think about all the devices that they have that connect to the Internet and ensure that um, they have basic security on those devices, whether it's a suite of security software, like or sometimes known as, you know, antivirus or anti-malware, uh, up and running, and, and they make that for all those devices now. You can get them for mobile. You can get them for, you know, laptops and, and PCs, of course, have been around for a long time. And that they work in that environment to keep those machines clean. And that includes, you know, sometimes some of the web surfing they do and going to websites where they see the green bar or HTTPS on top that tells them that that's a more secure site. Trying to keep their machines free from infection is very important because malware or malicious software, maybe that's a better name, you know, so people don't might not know what that little sure. conjunction means, yeah. is the software that the bad guys use to take over your machine. And they use that software or malicious software to collect personal information about you, including some of it collects keystrokes, right? Like when you're putting in your password, for example. Some of it can take over your machine and use your machine to send out spam or other things. So it's a lot of bad stuff that can happen. Keeping it clean is really important, all of them. And that's usually, depending on the device, a different kind of method, unfortunately. It's not all seamless like we would love it to be. Right. On your laptop right now or your PC at home, if you're running a, any of the big brand name antivirus or security software, that's updating automatically, maybe even you know, every several minutes in some cases, depending on the program you're running. On your phone, however, it could be quite different. So you know, most of us, and I, I'm, I can be guilty of this myself, have a little folder on our phone with a number, you know, 22 in it, which are all the apps are in there that need to be updated. Those, <laughs> those updates often address security concerns. If there was a vulnerability that was noticed in a previous version of that app, they'll try to solve it in the next version. And so it's in there. And your phone also has an operating system. And phone operating systems don't update automatically. And you may be prompted to do that, and people really need to do that because, again, there could be a vulnerability that gets addressed. You know, Michael, that brings up a good point because I think all of us see that uh, folder with how many updates, and we just say, oh, I don't have time to do this. I really <laughs> don't want to do this. It, you know, the, the perceived hassle factor is high, but uh, what I'm hearing you say is that everybody should uh, automatically uh, perform those updates. They should perform those updates, and I would say – uh, in the mobile environment, they should be deleting apps that they no longer use. That's another safety uh, security way to keep a clean machine. I mean, to literally, you know, do a spring cleaning on your on your uh, mobile device. Because yeah. I know, and, and uh, I think a lot of us are just like this. Not I'm. I'm certainly too. Like I'll give you a good example from my world. Like I took my kids to Monticello, you know, Thomas Jefferson's home in sure. Virginia. Yeah. And uh, on the way down, I. Uh, I, I downloaded an app with the Constitution and um, Declaration of Independence, right? What better to look at on the car ride yeah, down? Yeah. Um, and so, there was, of course, there was an app for that. Right? <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I put that on my phone, and then I started getting requests to update that app. And I'm like, why would I have to update the Constitution? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> as far as I know, there's been very little change in the last uh, 100 years in that document. <laughs> So, you know, you really wonder what's going on behind the scenes on that. But that's an example of, like, if, you're not, if you download something for a particular purpose, you go to a city, you know, you want to get that app for that city, just delete it when you leave and keep it, you know, keep that clean machine. Keep a little software on there as you need. That, that story about the app reminds me of a story that Mark Goodman told us. I was us, thinking of that, yes, uh, yes. When he was a guest on our podcast about the, uh, an app, a flashlight app, and the flashlight app would ask for access to your contact list. And his location. And location. So it kind of makes you wonder why a flashlight app would need access to your location and contact list. Yeah, he made the point, you know, if you're asking for my location, it's in the dark. <laughs> 
Well, and I think that uh, that particular, and I'm not sure if he was talking about this specific one, but actually the Federal Trade Commission went after a flashlight app just for that reason. Uh, and I think this sort of speaks to another part of the safety and security is that make sure that the software that you're putting on is acting in ways that you would expect, right? Yes, yeah. And that's really what the FTC, I think, went after this group about was like, you know, when I put on a flashlight bat, my, ex- my expectation is that it provides light in the dark, right? And that's the functionality that I'm asking. If it's asking for all these other things, then clearly it's more than a flashlight app. And I think, right. and unfortunately, for any age group, that is a very hard issue to tackle because it really means opening up the, you know, the privacy policy, reading the terms and conditions right. of the apps that you uh, put on your phone or computer. Yeah, really, really fits uh, nicely in the stop and think components of Stop, Think, Connect, right? Yeah, we like to say think before you app, you know, make sure you understand. <laughs> That's good, um, think before you app, I love it. Yeah. You know, make sure you, make sure you understand, you know, what the software that you're putting on your system is actually going to do. Uh, it's hard for people to do. I, I get this, and I think we don't. I don't think we have great systems yet for making that information as accessible to consumers as it should be, and that's something we certainly advocate for. That's a good point. What? Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Michael? What would make it easier for consumers to access that kind of information? I think some, you know, maybe some more standardized ways of understanding uh, or graphical ways of understanding. I know some people are working on some of this now uh, in DC and other places to say, you know, here's what this, app, this, what this app collects, you know, in a way that's more, that's less in a legalese and more in simple language, and then explains to people in some ways, because here's, here's, here's the hardest part for people. Um, sometimes the information that an app collects is really needed to make the app work correctly, right? If you want your map to give you directions, it kind of needs to know where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, if you're asking to give me directions from where I am to the, to the restaurant I want to go to, it needs to know where you are. So some people might say, oh, it's collecting personal information, but it's actually, it needs that, right? On the other hand, if it's asking to, you know, download all your contacts or post to Facebook where you are, right, yeah. when you ask it to give directions, yeah. that's a whole different ball of wax. You need to understand that, right? Maybe you're okay with that. You know, and that's a personal choice. That's the other part of it. It's not all bright line law for how people feel about that. And so what we like to say is that people should own their online presence to the extent that they can, and they should look at those things, and they should use the settings that are available. And I know this starts to get complicated. Again, that's another area where it's not always easy, especially for uh, older people who might not be as used to the kind of way software gets set up to make the settings to your comfort level, right? Whether it's on a social network or comfort level of sharing. So it's, I'm only going to share with my friends, right? Not with the public. You know, those kinds of things where they can have some control over what gets shared and collected about them. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think in the Internet, no one has total control over that yet. But those things are available at some level for people to have some control, and they should use them. All right. So we've got... Uh, make sure that your uh, operating system is updated with anti-spyware, antivirus, anti-malware, all of that. Uh, watch out for the apps that you download and keep those updated. What else do you have in mind? Well, I think, and I think this is really um, an area that goes really to the think part as much as anything else. We like to say share with care in a couple of different ways. Share with care for us means think about what you're posting because it will be out there. At least people say now it will be out there forever. Since forever hasn't happened, it's unclear whether that's true or not, <laughs> not but that's true. the notion, right? And so I, I think when you're thinking about this, it happens at all different levels. So, you know, at the most basic level, it's like I'm about to post a picture of my grandchild, mm. right, on my Facebook account. I, I should give some thought to whether my grandchild would want that out there 10 years from now. Mm. Now he's five, when he's 15, when mm. he's 25, right? You know, how, how might he feel about that? That he might have what you might want him to have some say in his digital footprint. And this is not only for parent, grandparents, this is for parents too, right? Um, mm, very true. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that parents post that, you know, are, is going to be out there. And when their child, you know, now they're, you know, when they're, they're young and they're warm and they're fuzzy, but when they turn to a teenager, they may not be so happy with you, right? <laughs> so, um, Probably they won't uh, be. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point, Michael. Uh, and we've seen so many episodes of the grandparent scam, uh, you know, where, where a grandparent will post a photo on Facebook of my beautiful granddaughter, Emily. And then the next thing we know, Emily, in quotes, is calling grandma saying that she's in trouble. Yeah, I, yes, that's a, I've, I've heard of that scam as well. And that's the kind of way, 
so that kind of dovetails really nicely into sort of the share with care part, yeah, which is about no. thinking about what you're revealing when you share online, right? And it, in this case, it's really not only like the example you gave, the sharing a picture of a, you know, that could be used in a scam, but your personal information. Be really extremely cautious whenever you share things, personal information. And this should be your, almost your, you know, your lens, your screen uh, on the internet. Whenever somebody asks for your name or your address or other things that identify you, you should always be really thoughtful. And I would say, be a little suspicious about that. And then also be extremely cautious when you share, and let's go back to the picture of Emily for a second. Like if Emily, if the picture of Emily is in the front yard of the house that shows the street address. There you go. Right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, or, or a driver's or a car with a license plate in the driveway. Yeah. Or standing in front of her elementary school, you know, sign on the first day of school or whatever, right? You might actually be sharing more than you're consciously thinking about, right? Yeah. You're thinking, I'm sharing a picture of Emily, but you're yeah. actually revealing that Emily goes to, you know, any town USA elementary school, right. right? So we have to be thoughtful about those things because that's personal information about Emily. Good point. Very good point. Yeah, it is a great point. You know, so many people don't think about what's in the background of those photographs and, and what information that reveals. And I, I yeah. hear people also talking about how they post online, oh, can't wait for my trip to Hawaii. I leave Friday or whatever. It's like, no, don't tell people that. You're telling the burglars, hey, come on in, take my stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's that's a great point. And I think I'll give you a personal example of that. We just came back from our family vacation and my wife kept saying, can I post where we are yet? And I'm like, no. No. <laughs> you know? uh, and finally on the plane home, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, you know, we were gone for almost, uh, uh, you know, just around two weeks. That's a long time, yeah. right? And, yeah. you know, start posting, and we were far away. You know, and, and really when you think about it, and this is how we, you know, we get people to think about Share With Care, like the people who needed to know we were gone knew we were gone, yeah. right? And you only know, the our, people our neighbors who we know well, my sisters, you know, the people in our really immediate orbit, we'd have to post that publicly for the people who we wanted to know. Yeah. You know, if you want right. to brag about your vacation, you can do that when you get home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Michael, you've shared some fantastic tips with our audience about how to be uh, as safe as possible online. Unfortunately, we know some people are victims of cybercrime. Um, and what's your advice uh, to our listeners on the best ways to report cybercrime? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that people need to do. First of all, we can talk about some good resources that are out there, too, for them to do this. But they have to be very diligent about what's out there about them. So, you know, if a credit card or some other credit kind of information was lost about them, they're going to have to, you know, go and look at their credit history. They can put a credit, uh, a fraud alert on their credit um, so that they get notified if anybody tries to access their credit history. So they should do that. Um, that's with the three credit bureaus. They need to look at, you know, a lot of us probably don't pay as much attention to the monthly bills that come in over the transom. Yeah. Probably look at those accounts, your credit card bills or other accounts that you might have to see if there's any transactions that you're unsure about. It's a really important step to see if someone's trying to access your credit. You know, let, actually, let me go back a step and say, that there are different kinds of intrusions into your life this way, right? Account takeover, which is probably the one that most people experience, is that somebody got your credit card number, right? And they're trying to take over your credit card account or maybe your bank account. Usually those can be remedied relatively quickly through those processes I'm saying by watching it, by calling and saying, I need a new card, by notifying your bank that there was a transaction that didn't look right to you. Those organizations, financial services especially, uh, up and down the financial services industry, have been working really hard to fight this fraud. And so they have a lot of things in place to help you do that uh, and protect you. I give them a lot of credit. They're pretty good at that Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I I give the credit credit card companies a lot of of credit, as it were, (laughs) because they, they really do a good job. I mean, my Discover card got hacked a few months ago at Thanksgiving, and... Uh, they were right on top of it, and, I mean, it was hassle-free. They took care of it, and, I mean, I had a new card just a couple of days later. So and I was never held responsible for anything. So, And I've always heard that you have more protections with credit cards than debit cards. You absolutely do. I mean, the good news is, I think, in this regard, is that chip and pin is coming in October. Yes. So that means that credit cards will now have uh, chips in them, and you'll have to, in a, during a transaction, at least in a – it doesn't really help on the online side, unfortunately, as much as we might like – 
But at least in the physical presence, if someone clones a card, they would have to clone your chip, which is almost impossible, and then they would have to have your PIN. So it requires a higher level of authenticating the transaction before it happens. But you're right. The financial services have done a good job. They have lots of fraud algorithms. They know a long time before you do that your card was used fraudulently. Mm-hmm. Um, behind the scenes, maybe people would be interested in this. Behind the scenes, they should know there's a lot of information sharing that goes on. So, for example, when Acme uh, Retail loses a million credit cards, Numbers, those numbers get shared, you know, with the issuers of those cards, whether it's the bank or, you know, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American mm-hmm. Express. And so they're paying attention to those cards, too, and they're looking for activity that looks outside of the, you know, normal realm of activity, uh, in addition to the way they normally do that. So, you know, there's a lot of effort there. And so I think that world is becoming better and better all the time. But when you get into the deeper identity theft, you have other problems, right? You have people trying to open bank accounts. You have people trying to open cell phone accounts or utility accounts or mm-hmm. take out a mortgage or steal your uh, medical records. And you, it's going to require a lot more diligence. Uh, yeah. Going to the credit agencies, for example, putting a, a fraud alert. Uh, a lot of people are advocating now for credit freezes. Yes. And this is actually, actually, I think for, for seniors, this is probably something they should consider. A credit freeze as opposed to alert is that, no one, if someone comes and tries to get credit in your name, they can't. Your credit is frozen. Right. And the only way to have that change is for you to unfreeze your credit and then have that request come through. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think why some older people might be uh, interested in this is, is that, you know, they might be at a stage of life where they've got all the credit they need and they don't need any more. Sure. <laughs> and, and they don't need, if they were to do something like, say, Maybe they're going to move and take out a new mortgage or, you know, rent a place that, you know, might require a credit check. They, they know that and they can go in and unfreeze their credit for that moment for that one transaction to go through. Yes. And then they can freeze it again. And that is protection. You know, if you're young and you're trying to open up credit cards and take out mortgages and, you know, do those other kinds of things that may be, that may be more onerous. But I think for older people, are pretty settled it's a pretty good technique right yeah still it gives them control or a sense of control you know a sense of control and it yeah. it, it actually and and i just talked to some people who i know who retired who, who did this they've had a credit freeze for a while and they said it wasn't that bad they actually were moving and they actually had to buy a house and get a mortgage and go through all that stuff which is you know a lot of credit checks right it was not that inconvenient for them to open the credit for that good. short period of time and say you know, I'm trying to get a mortgage. These people are coming in. They're going to look at my credit, and then they closed it down once the transaction was complete. I think that's just a good example of, of how those kinds of tools can be helpful. And they're not that widely used, right? Mm-hmm. They're out there, and they're not that widely used. So what else do you recommend for reporting cybercrime? Let's say that somebody is a victim, and, and what do they do? What, what's the first thing they should do? Well, like I said, the first thing is, you know, go to your bank, go to your credit card agency, check your uh, – put the credit fraud alert on if you want. Okay. You know, do those kinds of things. There are other places that you can report cybercrime. One is called IC3.gov, the Internet Complaint Crime and Complaint Center. They collect information on cybercrimes, and you can report all different kinds of cybercrimes there. I will say then you can do the same thing at the FTC, and you can also actually report some of those crimes, scams and stuff through the Better Business Bureau in most cases. They all go into the same database. That's not going to start an active investigation. I just want people to be clear about that. Back from my days in the victim services world, I think it's always good to create expectations for victims about what will and won't happen. It's not like someone's going to call you back and say and take a full report and, you know, know, keep you briefed on the uh, investigation of that crime. However, it's extremely helpful to those groups because they start to look at the aggregating those cases, mm-hmm. right? Oh, look at all these different, look at there's a whole hot pocket of identity theft over here in Omaha, or yeah. look, we're seeing a new kind of scam. People are starting to report something that we hadn't seen before, mm-hmm. right? So it's really helpful. In some cases, you know, you can try reporting it to your local police department. You know, we're really working hard trying to get cybercrime recognized as a more happening all the time kind of crime and that and we know from some research we've done that people would prefer to you know they expect their local police to play a role in crime that makes a lot of logical sense right you know, sure. who do you call it you know there are other agencies you can report to like the fbi or the secret service but they have very high thresholds yeah. i mean if it's a super large case if somebody mm-hmm. sold a lot of money then i would consider calling the secret service they actually are responsible for investigating financial crimes most people don't know that um, they also investigate data breaches, as does the FBI. So it really kind of depends what happened. 
But really, ic3.gov is really the main reporting mechanism that we, we uh, encourage people to use. Okay, and we'll have a link to that on our website at scammercast.com. And so uh, tell us again, tell our listeners again about National Cybersecurity Month, and uh, when does that come around? National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is in October. Um, we've been doing this for 12 or 13 years now, and a, a month dedicated to helping all everybody be safer and more secure online. We have Every week we have a theme. Uh, Stop, Think, Connect actually is how we always launch the month, the first part of the month, but we all, we'll have a week that speaks to small and medium-sized business security, We'll have a week that speaks to the home security, you know, the family, you know, how you protect your home, gaming and cyberbullying and basic security measures, all those kinds of things on the go, mobile in that week. We're going to look this year forward to the Internet of Things and how we secure that. Uh, there's not a lot of clear answers about that yet, but right. more and more things are being connected. And I think for a lot, probably a lot of your listeners, what's coming in the connection of medical devices to the Internet yes. Um, is really going to be a huge thing. There are tremendous benefits to that, but there are definitely going to be risks, and we have to understand those benefits and risks much more strongly than we do today. So we're going to talk about some of those issues. Good. And then one of the most dire issues that's actually out there in cybersecurity is not one that might come immediately to mind, but it's the lack of cybersecurity professionals. And if we're going to have this gigantic digital world, we need to be getting many, many more people into careers where they dedicate themselves to protecting the Internet. And so week five will really look at that issue, both about careers, but also about in, in, in sort of the younger, you know, K-12 through space, really looking at how do we graduate um, people into the workforce who can use technology safely, securely, ethically, and productively. Um, that's kind of our framework for what we think we should be trying to achieve. Right. Good stuff coming. Yeah. And, Michael, what kind of events do you have planned to support those weekly themes? Well, we're still working on some of them. We'll have some kind of a launch here in Washington. Still some, some work to be done there. We've still got a couple months to go. In, uh, we'll, be, we'll be going out um, around the country in various places, speaking uh, at uh, some big conferences to you know the business community. Um, we'll be uh, trying to reach uh, a group of young people, We'll be uh, probably in California. We are going to, um, every year we do something in New York with the NASDAQ marketplace, so we'll be doing something on that and the Internet of Things. And we're working on some, you know, discussion events around uh, increasing diversity and minority representation in cybersecurity careers. So some of those things are still in the works, but the things that will be really great for people, we'll have a ton of stuff. So our goal is that this should be an organic campaign, right, and that people should be, trying to educate the people around them, whether it's their children at the dinner table, their, uh, their clients at a community center, their customers at a business, um, their constituency of their organization, um, that everybody has to get involved in this. So every week um, we'll have collateral. We might have new research. We're doing some research on careers. We're doing some research on families and cybersecurity that will all be released. We'll have infographics that people can come and take and reuse. We have tip sheets every week for, that speak to the issues that we're trying to get people to address. We have sometimes other collateral that we might do for social media. We'll do a lot of stuff on Twitter and Facebook. We'll have uh, tweet chats every week at uh, hashtag chat STC for Stop, Think, Connect, where we bring together to talk about these topics we have a hashtag for the whole month, hashtag cyber aware that we're using this year. So we really will be out there trying to infiltrate and get the message out as far as wide. And we count on everybody's help in making that happen. Well, you can count on us. We'll definitely publicize it through all of our channels on social media and our blogs and here on the ScammerCast. Well, we really, really appreciate that. Michael, uh, I know you've mentioned uh, the Stop, Think, Connect website and now a, a couple Twitter handles. Where else can our listeners find uh, you or the National Cyber Security Alliance? So our website that we use for National Cyber Security Awareness Month, Data Privacy Day, uh, is called staysafeonline.org. And that's where all those other materials around the month are, um, uh, are put together. And there's also some additional information. And, and a lot of the tip sheets and other things are also on that website as well. So, um, and there's also some information about, like, going into the community and uh, teaching cybersecurity to kids at schools, which is something that we encourage people to do. So there's a lot of information over there. 
Right. Okay, again, uh, as Art mentioned, we will post links to all of the ways and avenues to connect with you on our website at scammercast.com. Michael, we are proud and honored to uh, be a partner with you uh, in this effort and look forward to uh, help supporting you spread the message. Well, we really appreciate that. And one other ask I have of your listeners, if, if I may, is Absolutely. that um, one of the things they can do for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month is go to staysafeonline.org and they can sign up to be a champion and let the world know that they're committed to cybersecurity. And if they do that, we'll put their logo on our website with a link to their website, um, and they can help us join the effort. And uh, we already have well over 100 groups that have done that, and we expect to be somewhere between four and 500 groups that support this effort and it all through the, through the month. So I encourage people to come and do that. Great. We'll publicize that as well. Yeah. And thank you very, very much for all that you've shared today. It's really been uh, just an information and guidance-filled episode, and we just can't thank you enough for all that you're doing on behalf of, of everybody for cybersecurity, but especially for our listeners here at the ScammerCast. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for you know um, creating a space where we could really talk extensively about these issues. I think that's you know something that also needs to happen, so we really appreciate your help in that way as well. Our pleasure. All right. Well, to our uh, listeners at uh, ScammerCast, we encourage you to visit our website at ScammerCast.com where you can learn more about the National Cybersecurity Alliance, about Stop, Think, Connect, and about the National Cybersecurity Month. And get involved and let us know what your thoughts are, your questions, your ideas at ScammerCast.com. Yeah, we'd love to have you engage with us on Facebook. Uh, leave us a comment at our pages at Senior Scam Action Associates or Hammer the Scammers. And be sure to leave us a comment at ScammerCast.com and tell your friends. If you like this episode, pass it on. And also be sure to leave us a review at iTunes so that we can keep spreading the message about keeping seniors and others safe from scams and frauds and help us hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.